Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear a writer's roundtable at a wordsmithy from the past with Alan Jacobs, Douglas Wilson, N.D. Wilson, and Aaron Wrench. Before we get started, I wanted to make sure you knew that we have just released the Canon app. The app is home to every digital piece of content that Canon Press does. That means conferences, man rampant, lectures, and more. In fact, this podcast, the All of Christ podcast, was originally made so that people could be more familiar with the range, the breadth, and the depth of audio content that is on our store. And this app really came from that same desire. So if you enjoy this podcast and the and the and all of the topics that come with it, the Canon app is for you. Instead of hearing one of these talks and going to buy the audio, you can now go subscribe to the app and you get all of that content at your fingertips for a low monthly rate. As you know, it is also no quarter November, which means for one month, you get a free subscription to the app. You can find the app in your app store of choice. Cheers. All right, so basically uh, what we're going to do today is uh, a writer's roundtable without the roundtable. Um, we're going to uh, basically, this is mainly going to be a time for, um, we'll start off with some introductory uh, remarks from each of, each of the writers here, and then uh, hopefully give a lot of time to uh, you all to ask them questions. So um, you can be thinking about that. Um, that's love to, give a, love to give a lot of time to that. Um, so, you know, get your questions ready. Um, we're talking about uh, writers. We're talking about writing. We're talking about um, aspiring to writing, that kind of thing. So uh, I think the, or thought the, the best way to, to kind of go about this is start maybe with um, a story from, from each of our uh, panelists here. Um, just the, the, your, personal, um, your personal journey into writing, um, however that happened, uh, however that occurred. Um, you know, if it was something you knew from the, you know, the very, very beginning, uh, you know, publishing breaks, that kind of a thing. Um, so, uh, yeah, without uh, really much more to say at this point, I'll go ahead and um, let, uh, we can just kind of go down this way. So, Doug, if you want to um, start off, uh, tell us kind of, um, and you can feel free to add, add anything into that. But. Well, I'll, I'll just begin very briefly, say I, I grew up in a family that loved books. Um, my dad ran a uh, Christian bookstore. Uh, I remember being taken down uh, to the bookstore as a little kid whenever he had to do inventory. Um, and we would help him count all the books for inventory and then he, we'd be paid in books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pick whatever he wanted to, to do. Um, we were read to from as long as, as, long as I can remember, we were um, we were read to a lot. I grew up around them, and I knew sometime in late elementary school, I don't know what year it was or exactly how old I was, but late elementary school probably, um, remembering that what I wanted to do was make books. And I didn't think of it in terms of writing. Um, <laughs> um, I, I just wanted to make books because the books were the coolest thing. So um, that's where it started. Uh, I, I knew I, 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 so I've always known that I loved writing, wanted to write. 
um, do something with words. And, but I didn't actually write my first book until I was maybe almost 40. Um, so it took a while. <coughs> Um, maybe just a couple follow-up questions uh, for me and before we move on. But um, um, you were writing before then, though, right? Yes, I yes. Um, I a newspaper I did a newspaper column and um, and some evangelistic materials and some you know uh, for like uh, Christian evangelistic uh, papers for distributing on campus and things things like that. But I didn't begin. Uh, in fact, I started writing for the Daily News in 1980, a, um, a newspaper column, and that's where I learned to type. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because it, the newspaper had a computer and with keyboards, and I would come, go down to the newspaper and log on and type, and that's how I learned to type. So that just made me think of that Steve Martin line. He says, uh, "Apple Pie Hubbub was a significant novel for me." Cause when I first started using verbs. <laughs> that was when I learned to type. Um, a, a bit of a chasm there. But, um, uh, um, so uh, before, before we move on, what um, maybe some, uh, this is always a tricky, a tricky subject, but advice on, um, to people aspiring to, to write, um, um, get published. Yeah, kind of the, the, I would say the main thing is Mark Twain defined a classic as a book that everyone wants to have read, but nobody wants to read. <laughs> and oftentimes, people want to be a writer, they want to have, have written, <laughs> but they don't want to write. And so the, uh, the first thing I would do is encourage people who want to write uh, to not start with the book deal, but um, if, if I got a lucrative book deal, then I would certainly apply myself and, and write something. I think you have to spend a lot of time just churning it out, learning what you're doing. Uh, that's what, and in fact, uh, go to school, finish school. Um, a good school will teach you to, uh, will hone a lot of those crafts and make you write. The finish so, schools are very difficult to do. <laughs> <laughs> finish school, not finishing school. Finish as an Along with Estonian school. <laughs> 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 um, okay, well, uh, let's move on to Dr. Jacobs, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make you talk a little longer. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> try. I'm gonna try. Yeah, that's right. That reminds me of a Coolidge story. <laughs> a lady was sat down to President. She was seated next to him, and she said, "Mr. President," he was noted noted for his taciturn ways. And she said, "Mr. President, I." Bet someone that I could get more than two words out of you this evening, and he said, "You lose." <laughs> <laughs> One, two. <laughs> we'll see how this goes. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I think I can get more than two words. Um, that's more, right? That's enough, right? <laughs> yeah. um, I, I did. Uh, I did a lot of uh, writing throughout. Actually, for. Um, until I was about 10 or 11, I thought I wanted to be an artist, and um, I actually tried to enroll in the famous artists' school, which you used to be in, like, the back of comic books. You could, you know, <laughs> send it, but I was told I was too young. Um, They're advertising in comic, in comic books. books. <laughs> <laughs> they tell you you're too young. If you're. So, uh, so while I was waiting for my opportunity to become a famous artist, I thought I would write instead, and... Um, but I, I didn't feel, this is an actual connection to Doug, so I didn't feel like it was actual writing unless it was typed. 
you know, that was when that was when you really went to the next level. You know, that's when you were serious. And so, <laughs> when I got my first job, which was in a bookstore, um, it took me a while to get a paycheck because we uh, we were opening this bookstore in a mall, and so I worked for the bookstore for a month before we actually opened. Just setting everything up, carrying the books around. It was it was manual labor, which I really didn't sign up for, but that's, you know, <laughs> that's what it ended up being for about a month. And and uh, so I, I, I couldn't buy any books because we didn't have any cash registers. So I, I just kept setting them aside, you know, the ones that I was going to buy, you know. And then I, I discovered that the number of books I'd set aside exceeded my paycheck for <laughs> the first month. So um, at, when I eventually got paid, I, 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 got, a, um, I got a typewriter and, and I, I wanted, um, uh, I wanted a, a, a really serious typewriter. So it had to be, you know, what, a, a big electric typewriter back in the day, right? And you actually had electric typewriters, and um, this current spoiled yeah, generation. Yeah, and uh, so, but I could only afford a, this ancient IBM Selectric, which I think look, I've, I looked it up the other day. I think it's like a 1953 model, you know. And I got it from this old typewriter shop, the sort of thing that doesn't exist anymore, um, and it, it had to weigh. 60 pounds, you know, and I, so I, I got it home and, and I decided to rearrange my room in order to facilitate writing and facilitate other things as well. So I ended up, I, I set up the, what I thought was this great system because I, I, there was a desk that had been downstairs that nobody was using and so I got this desk upstairs and I lined things up really neatly. It was, I thought it was great. I had my bed and the bed was kind of up against the wall and then I had my desk right next to my bed. Um, and so, so the, you know, the bed goes this way, the desk goes this way, and I put my typewriter in the middle of my desk, and then I had my TV. I had a little portable TV, which I put at the end because then I could just lie down on bed and watch the TV. It was just perfect, you know, it was just sitting right there. So I thought that was great. So I sit down and I roll the paper into the typewriter and I start typing. I was 16. And so and I start typing, and I hit the return, and it goes through the back of the TV. <laughs> this thing was just wham! Smashed right through the back of the TV. It was a Neil Postman moment. So, so, so it turned out I got a lot more writing done than I, I really thought that I would, because there really wasn't anything else to do in the room. So, except right. So. Uh, nobody was going to be getting me a new TV anytime soon. I didn't have any money because I'd spent it all on books and a typewriter. So you know that's how a writer begins, right? But, <laughs> um, but I ended up, I ended up, you know, becoming a scholar. And uh, also, like Doug, it was a while. I mean, I was 38 when my first book came out. I'd done, I had, I had written a lot uh, before that, but I hadn't published all that much. And, and the reason for it is, is really pretty simple, is that I loved being a scholar, but I hated the way scholars write. Um, it, just this abysmal prose. Um, and and, and when, did it, when did it become a, you know, a vice to write vividly, to write artfully, for heaven's sake, about, about literature and ideas? I mean, aren't those things that are worthy of, of beautiful writing, or at least the most beautiful writing that you can achieve? Uh, and I actually spent many years working relatively fruitlessly because I just didn't want to write like an English professor. Um, and yet, I was an English professor. This, you see my problem. Uh, and, 
and, and it was, but, but what I had to do was to find a way to write about the, the, the subjects of my interest and the subjects of my profession in as artful a way as I could possibly manage. And, and so it took me some years to figure that out. But it got faster for me when I began to follow a particular principle. And this is a principle that this is my advice to writers, my one piece of advice to writers. It's the same advice that financial consultants give to people who want to save money. And the advice is pay yourself first. <clears throat> right? That's what, they, that's what the financial consultants say, pay yourself first. If you, if, you, if you say, I'm going to put some money away after I've paid off all of my bills and after I've done all these other things, then you'll never actually put any money away. You, you really have to pay yourself first and then pay everybody else. Then you can save some money. And I finally started really making progress in my life as a writer when I started paying myself first. That is, my, my first and best energies went to the writing. Um, and what I found was that if I did that, I could still be a, a good teacher, as good a teacher as I'm capable of being anyway, because the moment brought its own energy. The moment, the, the situation of teaching brings its own energy. Um, and, but what I found is that if I said, I'm going to do all of my prep for class first and then I'm going to write at the end of the day, that never happened. Very little of it happened anyway. And so what I found was that if I paid myself first and I made sure that the writing got done before anything else got done, the other things got done too. The other things got done too. And I think in many cases got done better because I felt better about myself. I had a sense of accomplishment. I had a sense that I was moving closer to the goals that I had. And so whenever I'm asked to give advice to writers, that is the one piece of advice that I always give, is to pay yourself first. That is, if, you, if, if the writing that you want to do is something that you're just going to fit in around the edges of your life when you can, then you probably don't really want to do it all that much. Um, if you really, really, really want to do it, then you're going to, have, you're going to find a way to get that done. And then the other stuff that you have to get done will also happen. But it has to be a priority. There has to be a certain degree of selfishness about making that happen. And, you know, I, I, maybe selfishness isn't the right word, but that's the way it's going to feel. It's going to feel like selfishness. Um, but what it may actually be doing, what, what may actually be going on there is that you're heeding a call upon your life. Discipline. Yeah. So um, I, I think if, if I have one piece of advice, that's the one piece of advice. Okay. Thank you. Did I talk long enough here? Okay. Great. We'll, we'll have you talk more. Oh, I'm not done? <laughs> no. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> My turn. Nate. Um, also, upper elementary school for me was when I, it dawned on me this is what I was going to do, though, because of generational advance. I knew that it would mean writing books, <laughs> making books. But it is, yeah, it's writing sixth grade. That was, that was not when I decided, that was when I realized. It was sort of, the, this is just kind of the thing I want to do. And I didn't find out until much later that my sisters doubted me <laughs> the entire time. They, they, well, they never told me. You should, so I was you should okay. write about oh, yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. You should write about it. I should write about it. <laughs> so, yeah, some they, sort of delayed trauma. Or yeah. <laughs> no, actually, it, it kind of surprised me. They just <laughs> said, hey, uh, that's funny. We never let you do that. <laughs> but, uh, 
it is funny because there was no typewriters, nothing like that, but the ubiquitousness of the computer was not yet, uh, had not yet fully arrived. So I did actually uh, have to go right after Anselm House was all closed down and dark because I didn't own a computer, I didn't own a typewriter. So you would never buy a typewriter. But you couldn't afford to buy what, you know, ba the basic, basic laptop or, or anything like that. So we were, I was freshly married, right out of grad school, had finished school and had worked on short stuff, you know, micro prose, sketches, that kind of thing, trying to discipline paragraphs, sentences before I actually tried to tackle it, anything novel length. And then uh, got married, moved back here, starting to teach part-time in NSA and had no money and we had a little, you know, brand new baby. So we would uh, go down to Anselm House at night, I'd let ourselves in, my wife would come with me and stick the baby in the swing and I would just sort of write until I had 3,000 words and that was it. And so I couldn't, I couldn't leave until there were 3,000 words uh, in, in the dock. Um, and I didn't realize at the time that that was an insanely high amount mm -hmm. to be expecting myself to be producing, but it worked. And so <laughs> it was the, same, the same kind of thing happened to me in eighth grade when I hit six feet and people started asking me if I could dunk. I started thinking that, that was a reasonable expectation. <laughs> it was completely unreasonable, but they made me feel guilty for not being able to as a junior high student. So I had this real high expectation for how many words I had to be producing per day in order to do this. Um, I wrote a short novel and wrote it very, very quickly and then threw it away. Sort of looked at it and threw it away and made a note of everything I didn't like about it. And then went to the next one and started. And that one, um, uh, you know, bizarrely, that one was 100 cupboards. So uh, the first, the first permutation of it. So the actual published version of 100 cupboards is, you know, a sixth draft if you count that one. Mm. But um, you know, it was this 170,000 word monster, uh, bloated nonsense <laughs> that, I, that I generated in that second attempt. Um, and then rather than working on it uh, through a number of weird uh, circumstances, that manuscript was submitted to publishers before I'd read it. So I was, I was, working, um, I was working with a guy, not Aaron, and um, through various miscommunications, a rough draft, which I had not yet read, got sent out to New York. And um, I was frustrated because <laughs> you can't really call them and apologize. You know that's it doesn't work. But I started getting back really nice long rejection letters. Right. So instead of this will not fit in our list at this time, there were these two and a half pages and one and a half pages, and guys never actually saying no but explaining to me their concerns, and that that was very very encouraging actually. And then rather than starting over on this hundred and seventy thousand word monster. Uh, I decided to write a short, tight book to counteract it. So these people are already making semi-happy, semi-negative noises about one under coverage in behemoth form. And I figured if I give them a tight, short thing, uh, then they maybe will be convinced that I can discipline this. It's like this, this big, ugly thing. So at that point, I was talking Aaron into quitting his job <laughs> um, we met at NSA, we were both at NSA together, and I was talking him into becoming an agent and said, I will fire mine. Um, part, part ways with mine is a nicer way to put it. Um, part ways with mine and go with you uh, if you do this. And so I gave him the first three chapters of Lepi Gridge, 
which was my short disciplined one. He submitted that out to the people who had the fat 100 coverage version and immediately started hearing back from people wanting the whole manuscript, which I hadn't written. <laughs> so, um, and Notes to writers. <laughs> Things for, not for, to do. First to, first, you know, how actually, as, as advice, how, exactly, exactly. how to create massive incentive and, and punishing deadlines. It's, you know, I, 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 with my editor now, we refer to deadlines and drop deadlines. Yeah. And um, there are deadlines and then there's real deadlines. So this became a real deadline. Um, it mattered and Aaron and I were both poor and unable to do things correctly and people didn't know that he uh, wasn't in New York and luckily we have a 208 area code and New York's 212 and so they think that maybe you're in Jersey or something. <laughs> 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 it works. It really does. It's, the it's the iPhone has totally messed it up. Yeah, it actually has. Yeah. But um, it was helpful at the time. So Aaron told me he was visiting family in Philly. He could drive into New York. We had a deadline. It was two weeks later, I believe it was. Like, he will be in New York in two weeks. And if you have the manuscript, then I can hand it to people in New York. And so I had two weeks to finish a novel. So I did. I emailed it to him the night before. He. Uh, I, I think I sent you installments, um, and which he read, yeah. and then emailed him a PDF the night before he was in New York. He double parked in Manhattan, ran into a copy center, printed out copies. <laughs> <laughs> and we no writers, things not <laughs> We haven't stopped operating this way. <laughs> so he prints it off, and then you know, five minutes later, he's sitting across from the publisher of Harry Potter, saying, "Here's the book, you know, book you've requested." And, it's still kind of hot. <laughs> so um, the real target for us was Random House. They, we, I'd really liked their comments about 100 coverage. They kind of they cut very heavily the direction I wanted to take it. We gave them Leap Bike Ridge, and very quickly we had a multiple house situation going on, and landed with a four book deal with Random House. So um, very very happy with them, and with the way that whole pinata game went <laughs> and uh, I'm still with him and like him a lot we're working on a new series so but as far as advice goes uh, deadlines high expectations and um, you know what Dr. J Jacobs is saying about paying yourself first is very very true because you will realize if you have a job uh, or hopefully if you're a student of mine mm -hmm. um, that I provide consequences or your boss will provide consequences for you and you, you still manage, you, basically you're capable of doing a lot more than you think you are. And if you are saying, well, I, I'm the boss of myself as a writer, so I, well, I'm going to give myself grace because I'm tired. You know, oh, I can put this off, or I can put that off. If you do it while you have energy, you do it first. Uh, you'll find that you still have energy uh, to not lose your job and to not flunk out of school. <laughs> Hopefully. Uh, and if you don't, then you need to reprioritize. Yeah, reduce that word, that word count. But honestly, if you want to write, if you want to write professionally, then you are one of tens of thousands of people. Uh, last I've seen, still the most sought after profession in yeah. North America. And if you want to beat 99% of them, you just have to write something. So, <laughs> it really, um, it, and that's it. And you finish something, and then when you're done finishing that one, you finish the next thing. And if you get, if you get good, opportunities will present themselves you know, as, as you actually work. And the situation might not, what you did 
in writing something and throwing it away is actually something that many writers do throughout their careers. Yeah. I know um, Elizabeth Dewberry is a novelist who says basically I write a novel and throw it away and then I write another novel and that gets published and then I write another novel and that I have to throw away and then yeah. so every other novel she writes actually ends up coming to fruition yeah. but she can't write those exactly. without writing the ones that and you wish there's you know, yeah. when you read something like the unpublished works of G.K. Chesterton yeah. you think wow this is why it's not published yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a reason but but you see all the ideas he had that were genius that cropped up again and he executed them better in this other thing that was published and that's uh you have to be able to have you're going to have some chaff but at the same time the really prolific guys guys like terry pratchett uh, you know i i wish that every other novel wasn't published right because he has he's, he's a complete genius but because he's a complete genius and everything sells millions of copies no matter what nobody says no right everything on was a hard drive goes into print and I think every other one's about right. Yeah. <laughs> There's um, uh, and I think it, it it's really important to to realize that there really isn't anybody for whom this is an easy game. You know, there really isn't. And 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 I think one of the things that we can be deceived by is the kind of writing that looks as though it were effortless to produce. And you know, and the fact that it's effortless to read almost certainly means that it wasn't effortless to produce, right? That I remember being so shocked years ago seeing a series of drafts that E.B. White had gone through for a little casual that he wrote for the New Yorker yeah. on the first moon landing. Um, and I, I had read that piece, anthologized somewhere, and it's just one of those perfect little E.B. White bagatelles, you know, where every word is exactly right and it sounds like the guy is just talking to you and it has this perfect casual elegance and you think that, you know, he must have just sat down and dashed that off in five minutes. And that piece, which is I think maybe 400 words or something like that, went through seven complete drafts. And in fact, he went through four complete drafts in, 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 and sent it in to the New Yorker the next day said, this is garbage, and basically took two sentences out of it and built three more drafts out of those two sentences. Had to actually call the New Yorker long distance, you know, this is again back in the day, right, and read to them the, the final version over the phone. And I think, okay, so this is a guy who's willing to go to the trouble of doing seven drafts of a 400-word casual piece and go even more to go to the trouble after he's already sent it in to the New Yorker, which he knows is going to publish it as is, to have the standards to say, it's just not good enough and I don't want to put my name on it, and so I've just got to start over. Which is basically. why he doesn't have a large canon either. That's right. But That's right. At the, the same time now, I, there's a lot of people that are online blogging and again if you're in my freshman class or have been you've heard me talk about left to right writers mm. and you write as you think of something you have no self-control as a writer whatsoever i was ranted some of the freshmen about that today <laughs> the declamation but the ability to say no this that thought goes later that thought flows from this thought and to structure and rearrange is something that we groom ourselves not to do mm. uh, our journalists now are posting remotely you know onto websites you know, it's like it's everything super fast-paced, no revision, no reworking. We'll correct it later because it's not actually in print; it's online. Mm -hmm. So you can go in and you can you, know, you can retract or 
or improve or, or shift. And so I think there's a, there are a lot more people writing than there have ever been, uh, thanks to the great wide interwebs. And I, I don't think a lot of them are improving because it's just, you say it as it comes and you're, you're just practicing running your mouth. The other, so just the, the, some, the bottom line of all of this that I'm hearing is that writing is hard work. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a craft, Sometimes. it's a discipline. <laughs> but it, well, like limericks are just easy. <laughs> <laughs> Except I never could finish that epic poem in limericks. I tried to do that. <laughs> Spencerian limericks. I got down. <laughs> I got bogged down about 300 pages in. And <laughs> This is a good time, uh, maybe to open up for some uh, questions here. Um, anyone having any, any any questions? One question: What do you do? But why can't he just send his manuscript in? Why can Aaron? Oh. Yeah, no. Why no? Why what? do you need Aaron? Why is Aaron? Why can't you oh, just send it in? <laughs> <laughs> this is what, what do you do? Wait, what what you do? No offense. Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> I want to. I want to actually answer this question. So. Um, <laughs> This is one of the reasons why I hate cameras or things like this. <laughs> but uh, there, there's a good cop, bad cop thing that can happen. Um, first off, and a guy who submits for you can talk about the work in a way that you never can. Um, can present it in a way that's a true, a true sale, a true pitch that I could not possibly do. Um, and you, you know, even if I'm, ho I'm hoping it's good, and he can look at it and say, oh, "This is really good. You should publish it." I, can I say that? You know, like it's you're immediately deflated. And once they come to you and say, "We would like to publish this," they will act as if they're bestowing upon you a great honor, um, because they are. And there's a line five thousand people long out the door wanting that great honor, and so they'll offer you, you know, two hundred bucks. <laughs> you know, and so, you know, just why do you need why do you need a bad cop? You know. So, why do you need a guy who can objectively sell, objectively pitch, um, and, and um, given the industry, can receive more objective and harsh criticism uh, about the work than they would ever give an author. So you can get real, direct, honest feedback from an editor, from a publisher, because you have an agent. Uh, and you can also, uh, you know, the other applies too. They, they can pitch hard as well. Did that help, Aaron? Did you do it justified? <laughs> did, did I answer it? Well, yeah, sure. And yeah. I just wanted to hear about your job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, basically, the, the main thing I've been doing for the past. Um, well, yeah, it goes back quite a little ways, but I've been doing it full time for two and a half years, approximately, or something like that. And before that, probably another three or three years or something, working as a literary agent. And. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, basic, the basics of it are that you, as a literary agent, represent authors to publishers and, um, you know, uh, try and have uh, a pulse on the market and know, try and know editors, um, the right editors for the right things, yeah. um, and uh, which, is, uh, which is a fun thing to do from Moscow, Idaho. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't do it anywhere else. Um, <laughs> Uh, but it, uh, there's a there's a, a writer Walter Kern. He writes for the Atlantic, uh, um, a number of places. He writes novels too, and lots of kind of, lots of things. But wrote up in the air, wrote up in the air, yeah. sucker, all sorts of yeah. George Clooney movie. Um, <laughs> but uh, he said, if you want to be a writer, he said, move to New York or the place that represents New York for you. 
Um, and I kind of liked it because that's Moscow for me. Um, <laughs> and um, so uh, that I've, I've got probably now uh, 10 authors that I work with um, in, that, in that ballpark. And um, I just, I absolutely love it. And so, I, uh, you know, just developing proposals with an author, sample writing, taking it to the right publisher, getting public, hopefully multiple publishers interested and then you're just, it's, it's, some of it's like sales kind of work. Um, just, you know, keeping on top of people. You, you know, you have you read it, you know, getting, you know, I've got interest over here. Are you, um, are you guys in or out? You know, it's, you know some of it's that kind of raw sales stuff. Um, That's what my agent calls chasing. My agent calls it chasing. chasing you're yeah. always chasing somebody. Yep, yep. Yeah, that's exactly. I should intrude something here, uh, double advice to writers. Uh, one of the things that I do is I read wordsmithing books, and there's a whole cottage industry dedicated to that. And some of them are terrible, and some of them are, are quite good. And there's just, a, and I, so I try to have as a regular theme in my reading um, books on writing dialogue, and books on plot structure, and books on uh, you know just how to write. And in the course of doing this, and that's the first thing, I think it's uh, be discriminating because. There's, it's an it's a cottage industry. There's a lot of good stuff, but it's also incestuous because uh, <laughs> there are a lot of desperate aspiring writers out there. It's, a, it's yeah. easier if you're a failed novelist. It's easier to write a book on how to get your novel published. <laughs> right. There's a basically it's a seller's. It's an easy sell because writers are so hungry, and and oftentimes desperate. But so be discriminating when you're reading uh, this. But in the course of this, I picked up uh, a book, How to Be a Literary Agent as one of my wordsmithing books because, you know, okay, that sounds interesting, so I read it. And then for some reason, out of the blue, I thought, I ought to give this to Aaron Wrench. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot to tell this part. <laughs> and so I did, and <laughs> <laughs> You just have to connect the right book to the right person. <laughs> now the funny thing is, when he gave me that book, I was like, what the heck is a literary age? <laughs> and who needs one of those? <laughs> So I wasn't really pitching myself very well, <laughs> but um, yeah, no, that, that, that was, that's exactly what happened. He gave me this. I still have it on my shelf, uh, and I don't even think I finished it actually. <laughs> <laughs> he, took it, his, he took his advice quickly. <laughs> it, did, it did. It did the trick. I, I think. I think it's interesting how many writers are kind of instinctively suspicious of agents, you know, and... And, and should be. And so, yeah, <laughs> speaking from experience, obviously, but, <laughs> you know, but I, I, and I think there's, there is this, uh, there are reasons for it. There yep. are reasons for it, uh, for the suspicion. But there are also some bad reasons, um, and, and I think it's, uh, the best thing that has ever happened to me as a writer is getting the agent that I have now. By far the best thing. Now, Getting a bad agent <laughs> can maybe be the worst thing that would ever happen to you as a writer, but get, having a good agent, but, because if you have a good agent, then what you get to think about is writing. And it's just, that's just terrific. You know, because so many other things that you would have to deal with if you were trying to do everything on your own, that's their job. It's not your job. Your job is to write. Um, and it's just, it's been tremendously helpful. and. Agents know a lot of stuff. Uh, a good agent knows a lot of stuff about the market, about what, yeah, I mean, 
so you could send you could send your your manuscript out to 30 different publishers an agent who actually knows the territory would realize that in 27 of those cases you're absolutely wasting your time there's no way that you're ever going to get a response from that house or from that editor and a knowledgeable agent would be able to say instead of sending this to these 30 random places how about these six targeted places where I can be pretty confident that your your work is going to get at least a sympathetic hearing and and you heard from Nate how important it can be to get a sympathetic hearing yeah. even when they're not saying yes I mean that can really be the strength to go on in so many ways and in addition to substantive advice that might come so um, I, I, I just think that that you, there's it's hard work finding the right agent but it's worth it's worth worth pursuing I think it was for me anyway there's a hand over here okay <clears throat> well, I don't write as much as these guys do. <laughs> um, basically, I got into, well, actually, uh, it's a very easy story. Um, I got into writing because... I gave him a book. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, How to be a writer. <laughs> pardon me. I know you write poetry. Yeah, um, and the way I got into that was I took a poetry class from uh, Doug Wilson. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Partly responsible. <laughs> he immediately handed you an ancient book. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Why, why are you try this? <laughs> but um, I mean, that, that really was. I wasn't. I'm not like these guys. I wasn't thinking about. I was always always interested in books and you know devouring things like Hardy Boys. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's and, and loved. To, well, not love, but you know, I didn't mind a, a, a day sick because you know I could plow through three Hardy Boys or something like that. You know. Um, and then sports kind of pushed things out uh, out in uh, junior high and high school. And I didn't I didn't uh, read that much, but I mean it was I wasn't like sitting around, not sitting around, but in elementary saying I'm going to be a writer. Um, and it was I, I came, I, but I always did love words. I always did love reading and, and books. And my dad always had a huge library, um, so I was always around books. And then came to New St. Andrews and took this poetry class, and it was um, I always say it's kind of like the entomologist. Um, uh, who you know, and I have one in mind, um, <laughs> who, who picks up a you know a turtle or something like that, and can you know talk about all these. You just think turtle, you know. They, they they pick it up and they identify all these really cool things about the turtle, and that's kind of what poetry felt like. You know, picked it up and it was like you know all of this complexity and and, uh, and beauty, and it really just got got me hooked. And um, so uh, that class was kind of the launching pad, and then. Um, I just kept going with it, and then I took uh, another poetry class later on from Robert Ridley, a poet over here at UI, who's a pretty pretty well-known poet. Um, and that class took it another step, and um, and then um, uh, later on, um, I'm trying to remember exactly how that happened. I think that, that's right. I had actually started looking at MFA programs, and um, and and <laughs> funny enough, uh, I had looked at Oxford before, and I didn't really think much about it and then uh, a couple years later um, Nate said you know Oxford's got this you know poetry um, in the, you know, MFA program and I found out and so he told me about it. I was actually in my in-laws on Christmas vacation filled out the application and I had like two and a half weeks to get my reference letter and all this stuff and 
and it was applied, and um, five months later, found out I was accepted, and um, so then I went and did that, and um, it's just that's that's kind of the the brief uh, the brief story. Um, but he also has sort of an electric magic touch. I mean, with the Oxford thing, the the only one there who wasn't previously published or already had a different, you know, graduate degree. Um, so just sort of, I think they all needed an agent. <laughs> so that's it. Opened doors. Yeah. yeah. I guess this question is for Nate. Um, what is the process of constructing a novel? Like I can conceive constructing a short piece of fiction. You, you can know, conceive of that. <laughs> a short story, um, a short sketch. But just when you get to novel length, how do you have to change your mentality? What do you have to do? To, to accomplish that? Well, I, I just actually started with trying to expand short fiction, which didn't work terribly well. Um, you know, so as soon as you, you're trying to go from a three to 5,000 word piece and you're trying to go to a 100,000 word piece, it's, it is a huge explosion. And just in some way, it's like putting together a whole bunch of short pieces that are starring the same people. Uh, and each chapter does need to have its own rise and fall and tension and so on, but you're always kind of marching toward um, this end this end goal. Um, but for me, it was always, uh, and I've, I've, I have a blog, I was saying this earlier when we were in an interview, I have a blog on which I do not blog. Um, <laughs> because if, I'm, if, I'm, if I have time to sit down and, and compose, I'm, I have things I have to finish. Uh, <laughs> so. Because of the drop deadlines. Because of the real <laughs> drop deadlines. But with the novel, what I what I found really, really helped me control it. Uh, I tested short novels. I went with the big bloated thing, and I had to really figure out how to get a handle on it. And what I, uh, what I have is basically a way of trying to hit your marks. Like you, you set a whole bunch of points for yourself, and then you then you actually hit them. It's like hitting deadlines. Uh, and hitting your marks is something I think that that helps a lot through the editing process, it helps in the invention process, and you know, I've, I've been meaning to write a piece for my blog for writers on hitting your marks, and I'm not going to do for probably two years. But um, the, what, what I do is basically I'll, I'll try to get a picture of what's the whole story. So where does this book begin and where does it end? You know, where, where am I gonna leave these characters at the end of the story? Then in between there, what are my major, major events? Like what are the, the major plot turning events that happen, and I'll end up with maybe a five-point outline. So for a 100,000-word novel, I'm looking at five points. So you've got your opening, you've got your end, and you've got maybe three macro points in the middle. And then you just take the first two, you know, like from the beginning to this first point, and move that off to the side, and you're thinking, okay, how much time is this going to take? You know, this is, how large is this unit? Is this three chapters? You know, that's, you know, three, four chapters maximum. Then you break that out, like, okay, so what are going to be the points that get me there? And you kind of just sub-outline. <coughs> um, and so now I've, I've gotten to the place where that, that can be mental, too. You don't have to have, if, if you really know it well, you can be fine. Um, so then I'll sit down to write a chapter, and I'll take, you know, an, any old scrap of paper. I'm a little more organized now, so it's usually matching, but whatever's available. <laughs> and I will write a short three to five point, usually five point outline for that chapter. So first chapter, I have my macro thing that all fits on one page. First chapter is going to do what? And that'll just go on the wall right above the computer. Like th these are your marks. You're going to hit this at the beginning. This is what has to happen in the middle. 
And what you discover as you write in your chapter is that you keep wandering off the path. You know, so where are your characters going? Um, your readers are allegedly interested because the characters are journeying somewhere. Something's happening to them. They're growing, they're changing, there's outside tension. And you end up with them off, you know, catching a beetle or something. Um, <laughs> turtle, probably. Yeah, turtles. <laughs> in there. So it, it, it is really easy if you just say, okay, I'm going to write about this kid. What happens next? And it turns into just, and then, and then, and then. It's like, in, and you're wandering, trying to find, okay, so what's interesting that could happen next? You, you really have to know. Suddenly it, a shot rang out. Yeah, a shot rang out. A dog barked. So it, you really, when you sit down, you have, a, you have a character which is shaped at this point. I mean, at this part of the process, I know these characters already, they're not written. But I'm not going to start until I, you know, I know them. I'll know them much better once I've written them. But where are they and what am I aiming at? So you aim at something and then you hit it and you keep at that chapter until you, until you've hit it. That chapter ends, you get the next scrap of paper, what's chapter two gonna do? And you you always have the macro goal, how's it's gonna how how it's gonna serve this overall trajectory. So you are putting together all these pieces and then if it really works remarkably well, then you know everything's glorious and easy in editing. Um, if it doesn't, then uh, you, you find yourself doing that over and over, replacing sections, just deleting whole things, whole threads, and, and playing with it. The deadlines are beautiful because I'm, I'm now to the point where I could work just indefinitely on a novel. I don't know when I would say, okay, it is done. No, it's done. There's, there's not one phrase that I would change in this 100,000 uh, word piece. That it doesn't occur. So now I've got you know a real hard deadline tomorrow. Um, for one, and then an immediate, you know, another deadline following October 15th. So it's, you know, everything's real rigid. That's how you know when you're done. <laughs> <laughs> it's October 15th. Yeah. <laughs> but the, um, but the, the thing, at least for me, I work better that way because I'm able to put in intense focus and energy into something because there is a real hard thing coming. So if it was open-ended, I would always be gentler to the manuscript. Um, and you really need to be fairly ruthless in the editing process. So the deadline I'm on right now, spitting on the table, uh, the deadline I'm on right now is an editing deadline. It's a, it's a polished draft, and you've, you really need to be cutthroat and quick. And if you have an, an instinctive impulse that this probably isn't that great, then, then cut it. It's like if it needs to be, you, know, you really need to like every single part. You, know, you need to enjoy every single page or you don't release it. I think it's interesting to think about how Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings because he had no idea what was going to happen. Yeah. When he, I mean, he just kind of lodged in, and, and there were several points at which he just he stopped because he just he didn't know what the next thing was going yeah. to be. It took him 17 years to write The Lord of the Rings. So this is what happens when you don't have marks to hit <laughs> and you don't have deadlines. Right? You know, yeah. writing mythologies, not books. Yeah. Right, and, and C.S. Lewis yeah. says somewhere that when his friends would give him critical feedback to his writing, that Tolkien responded one of two ways. Either he took no notice of you at all, or he ripped it up and started over. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he, he was just a yeah. agonizing. Yeah. Uh, so, and Lee Pike Ridge, actually, for me, was fairly short and manageable, but that was just, I started and I was wondering what it was going to be. Yeah. And, ha, huh. <laughs> <laughs> what's going to happen? You know, there's a chunk of styrofoam. 
You know, you're, you're starting to try to figure it out. But oh, wait, that's a turtle. Yeah, Backspace. But it was... Delete key is your friend. Exactly, it really is. But it was, it was fairly, you know, fairly small. But still, as a result of the fact that it wasn't planned, like that I, I wrote from left to right, I finished up close to 80,000 words. I then cut it down to 49 um, without cutting anything. <laughs> you know, like, so the, the story was there, and you find that there's just so much dawdling while you think of the next thing, and just, it's like siphoning gas, where you're, you have your characters here, and it's sort of like you need something to be flowing, so they are thinking around thinking things, you know, like you think, they're thinking, oh, here's something. <laughs> but as you come back, there's this, hey, what is this 3,000 words doing? And that was you meeting your daily quota, is what it was, <laughs> while you thought of the next thing. So I've, I've learned to try to preempt that. Um, a little bit, so I, mean, I do a lot of even so though, you know, three thousand lousy words is something to work with, right? I mean, yeah, you know, it's yeah, something, yeah. you know, it, I mean, it, it beats, absolutely, it beats yeah. the heck out of you Still know, doing this. Yeah. <laughs> you can always cut it like it's like building. You can always cut it shorter, but you can't cut it longer. Yeah, <laughs> get the material out. That, you know, get it. Bam. I don't know. I always <laughs> every draft comes back and it goes back larger. <laughs> <laughs> Gibbler. Um, what is the average word count for a, a novel these days? Like that editors are looking for? There's, there's not an average. It really depends on your genre. The Tom Wolf novel or a... <laughs> <laughs> the average word count of a Tom Wolf novel. <laughs> it is. Uh, it, it's totally up in the air. I mean, honestly, it's going to come down to does it grab and will it sell? So. I heard that for like starting out authors, they tend to like shorter pieces because there's less risk in that? Is that still the case? Probably. Yeah, but it really, again, it's more of a chance of getting a reader. <coughs> but if you're writing crime thrillers and you submit a crime thriller, it's like, it's really short. <laughs> well, those people don't buy those books. You know, that market is in for an escape. And, you know, that might be a problem with the genre, but they're not looking for something short. So it's going to depend on young adult, teen, adult, fantasy, sci-fi or deep and profound. <laughs> so if you're aiming for deep and profound, I'd, I'd stick it, keep it short. Short. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's tiring to write that stuff. <laughs> you're like, it's even more tiring to read it. <laughs> you're like putting me a bookmark language. <laughs> Saw the back there, yeah. Um, could, I guess any of you talk about your initial inspiration for a book? Like what, yeah, what the idea, when the idea is um, I tell people that I write to make the little voices in my head go away. <laughs> How's it working for you? <laughs> I think they enjoy being published as a this is, I was um, I was talking to Dr. Jacobs earlier about his <coughs> biography of the imagination of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said that he wrote from images. You know, he had pictures. He had a picture of a fawn and a lamp post and had to justify that and, and he I, I need to write a story around that so Lewis starts with images I st this is going to sound weird of course you but I s oftentimes start with titles mm -hmm. I, I, th I think of a title and I think you know a phrase that that would be a great title of a, <laughs> you know, an article or a chapter or that's that is the kind of thing that I want and I say well that that's such a great title, it needs something to go with it. <laughs> and so I write, I, I frequently write to the title. I think for me, it's, it's things that won't leave me alone. Yeah. 
Um, like the voices in my head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, what happens is that there are voices in Doug's head, and then uh, he calls me and tells me. <laughs> no, but I mean, there's you know, there's something you think that's interesting, and then you don't think about it again, and and then there are other things you think that's interesting. Now I don't think I'm going to do that, and then next week it's back, and then a month after that it's back, and after a while you realize that if I don't write this, it's actually not going to leave me alone, <laughs> and so. Um, I mean, most of what I write gets written that way, by, uh, and I think that's something that can really apply uh, across um, almost any genre uh, that you happen to be writing in, this sense that your, your mind has latched on to something which is clearly of significance to your mind, even if you don't know what that significance is. And sometimes writing is how you find that out. It's how you discover what it is that your mind is working with and why it, it keeps being drawn back to this. And, so it, that, I find that pretty helpful because if an idea pops into my head, I've learned not to just sit down and start working on it immediately. I'll, take, I'll make note of it, but I won't sit down and start working on it immediately because I don't know whether it's something that's got legs. I don't know whether it's something that's going to last. I, I'll wait and see whether it, it returns, whether it revisits. And, uh, and, and that way, I have a much better s sense that what I'm working on is something that I'm going to continue to be interested in, and I'm going to want to do, and it's going to carry me through those uh, tough times when I really don't want to be working on it. Total agreement. So it's it's really for me, it's about writing the scratch and itch. Yeah. So the itch can come because there's a phrase you want to justify. Uh, 100 covers was I, I was trying to justify a title uh, mm. to my wife. <laughs> so you know, late night conversation. I say 100 little covers sounds like a fun kids book title, and I was ready to move on and be done with it. <laughs> she says it sounds like a stupid title. <laughs> and so then I, then there's pressure. There's, <laughs> come on now, this could be amazing. <laughs> so uh, basically writing to prove your spouse wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, then, then in fact, it was, I, I considered myself to have won the argument that she was insisting the next morning that I start writing. Yeah. You know, so it was, we, and for me it was still fairly theoretical, but the itch was there. Lee Pike Ridge was the first line, you know, the first line needed to be justified. But um, pressure, different kinds of pressures always work really well for me. So I like problems, yeah, I like things that would be difficult. So could you, I end up with a scenario where it's a, a certain type of person or a you know, certain situation, how could you arrive at that in a story? What would get you there? Like that, that moment, and it could be a weird visual. So, you know, the one I'm working on right now, this will sound strange, but killing somebody with a key ring. Um, it's like, it's like how, how would that happen? <laughs> so that, you know, that was early, early germination phase. But um, one of my favorite moments was I got sent a cocktail napkin uh, by Esquire magazine, thanks to Aaron and a weird, uh, weird situation there. I don't know exactly what all went into them sending me a cocktail napkin, but they sent it to 200 writers and they said, can you write us a story on this little paper cocktail napkin? It has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and begin the present. And that, those are the rules. And it was a real quick reaction to it. I was at Mark Beecham's bookstore, which then existed, and there was a big fat book up on the shelf that said, The Rise and Fall of Judaism. And I thought to myself, that would be really funny to stick that on a napkin. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so like that's. And then I left, and I just, for a month, I tried to think of other things, but I now can It's like, that was, that was it. And so I changed it. It was that or nothing. Right? Yeah, it was that, exactly. So, 
The one time I've written anything on a typewriter, I went back down to the bookstore, cut the napkin into little strips, fed it through a manual typewriter and typed on it. Uh, the title was The Rise and Fall of Circumcision um, <laughs> instead of Judaism. And that was my morph off of The Rise and Fall of Judaism. Then I had to justify that. So I, here's my title. I typed it on the front of the napkin. Now, okay, what, what next? I ended up fitting 1,100 words on that cocktail napkin. <laughs> but, um, but then hand stitched it up and sent it off to me. But that was a napkin novel. Yeah, but so I just there's a weird pressure. So if somebody says, "I bet you couldn't write a story about," you know, fill in the blank, um, a fat kid with three arms. <laughs> it's not going to be long before you say, "Well, <laughs> you know, there's potential there." <laughs> get out of your writing, so creative writing or theological writings, what is your, um, are you hoping to impact the culture in a certain way, um, just write good stories, give um, impact as Christians, um, hopes and goals that way through writing? You know, Freud once said that the artist gives up, and of course Freud thinks in, in masculine terms, he says the artist gives up uh, money, women, and prestige in order to produce his art, by which he hopes to gain money, women, and prestige. <laughs> Freud is a very rarely right. Yeah. That's amazing. So whenever anybody talks about that's always the first thing that comes to my mind, you know, but I'm just quoting Freud here. I'm not, you know, making in, any endorsement. <laughs> Uh, you know, it is, um, it's, it, for me, it's always a very strange oscillation between the sort of the internal, the itches that need to be scratched and the desire to, to, uh, to make a difference somehow. And, and uh, I, I, when I think about it, I, I do think seriously about a really wonderful passage in a play by Tom Stoppard called The Real Thing, which has... You're going to have to bear with me here because once I start talking about this, I have to tell a story about his, 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 the metaphor that, he, that uh, a writer in this play named Henry creates. He, Henry has a friend, a female friend, who has a boyfriend who is a recently released convict. And, and, he did, and when he was in prison, he decided he wanted to be a writer. And she wants Henry to help him be a writer, but he doesn't have a lot of talent. He's not really very good. And, and Henry's trying to explain the difference between good writing and bad writing, and he says, and he picks up a cricket bat, and he says, this looks just like a piece of wood to you, he said, but the cricket bat is designed and built with this extraordinary elegance and, 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 and specificity so that if you hit the ball just right with it, it goes 400 feet in five seconds. You know, it's just, it, it has that, this resilience, it's this amazing thing. But you can actually carve something that looks just like it. And when you hit the cricket ball with that, instead of the ball flying 500 feet, you, or 400 feet, you drop the bat and you jump around with your arms <laughs> under your armpits, your hands under your armpits because they're aching from the. He said that's the difference for him between good writing and bad writing. The good writing is like that cricket bat, that it's perfect. He, he then illustrates this by reading lines from the guy's story and then jumping around. The <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 oh. 
But 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 then he ends up by saying, you know, if you do it right, he said, then uh, he said you, you you have the opportunity to nudge the world a bit and to make something uh, that children can say after you when you're dead. And I always thought that was a really, I really like that way of putting it. You know, know that, yeah, just, no, let's don't be grandiose here, you know. But if you can nudge the world a little bit, just a little bit, you've done something really, really worthwhile, it seems to me. And then maybe there will be somebody who will remember it a long time from now, too. That's I what I always think about. I would, I would add to that, uh, there's the, sort of the autobiographical level. I, I write at that level for the same reason that dogs bark. I, it's just, <laughs> don't, you just do this, right? And what do they hope to get from it? <laughs> you know, you, you they just, also you, that's more you're overanalyzing it. <laughs> <laughs> right. But but the literary uh, critic is what I do. But at a, at the theological level, in the beginning was the Word, and Arche and Halagos. And we are we are Christians. We worship the Word of God. Um, so God is Father and and Son and Spirit, but God is also Speaker, spoken, and hermeneutic. And the Spirit interprets the deep things of God. The Father speaks. The Son is the spoken spoken one and so uh, Christians are people of the word and so must therefore be people of words and I believe that the decline of the written word is a, is a direct result of a decline of worship um, not not understanding our duties in worship not understanding uh, who we are as uh, homo adonans worshiping man not homo sapiens but we, we want to worship God and I, I believe that a reformation or restoration of True worship is going to not in the not in the postmodern critical sense of logocentric, but in the robust Trinitarian Christian sense of logocentric. We we are worshippers of the Word. So how could we not be all about words? How could we not uh, love them, love the rumble bumble of them, and, and love the color and the texture, and and say, ooh, when you do it, arrange it this way, look what happens, and when you do that, look what look what happens. So it, it's ultimately theological, but it's, that does I'm not trying to throw a pious sheen over the whole enterprise because if the, you have to come back and say at a personal level, you're scratching an itch. God, God made us to do this sort of thing. Uh, so when, when different people, painters and architects and artisans are uh, exhibiting the mannishness of man, to use Francis Schaeffer's phrase, writing is one of the essential human endeavors. And I think it's one of the coolest things in the world that Augustine, dead these centuries, could think certain thoughts in his head, scritch things on paper. I can download those same thoughts. For free on your iPhone. I can get a book and read and then think the same things that he was thinking. How, is that cool or what? You know, and, and so it's, it enables you to reach your descendants, to to write for others, to give yourself away. I, I think it, um, the writing life in a Trinitarian context is something that needs to be written about a whole lot more, actually. Yeah, just to, to pile on that, it's not about writing professionally or writing to make a living or something like that at that point, because you know, I, 
I think more housewives ought to be writing. You know, it's like it's you know pe people who are not trying to crack in and, and start a, a career, but because they have they have things to discover. You know, there's uh, there's there's pictures to cook. You know, like there's there's a lot of um, a joy to be found in, in discovering communication. So what is that thing that you're that you're sensing, that you're seeing, that you're experiencing this in this moment? Uh, and then the attempt to capture it, like the attempt to capture it and give it to somebody else. So if you've done that, you know, that's anybody anybody alive, anybody living has that. And then if they can grab it and give, then they're a poet suddenly. You know, that's that's what it is. And you know, we're not talking about needing to write two hundred thousand words. We're not talking about you know, vast tones, but just the ability to capture. Like, because God's doing it constantly around you. God's writing all the time, and there's all this wordplay swirling around us. And then we just try to snag, imitate, and imitate you know, as best we can, and then give to somebody else. And you you measure your success in capturing when you give it to somebody else. Like, do they do they hear that chord, you know, that you heard when they're not there? You know, so the successful communication of experience through time over generations and not just thought and propositions but it's you know it's weird and it is kind of you know I'm writing kids books is, is really really fun because they're my favorite kinds of books uh, but also because I like to, I like to read them you know so the dog barking thing but then knowing that I don't really I don't know my great-great-grandfather I have no idea who he was but my great-great-grandkids will know me pretty well it's like this is you know putting yourself into something and being able to you know, hand it off. So I've described for a lot of people that writing is like cooking for a crowd. Yeah, so you're, you're cooking for a mob of strangers and you're trying to find things and combine things, then you send it out the door and you know, see what happens. But it, it does last. Sometimes it doesn't last longer, but you know, a lot of times it, it does. This is, uh, it maybe won't seem related to anybody else, but it seems related to me. Anyway, uh, there is a, uh, <laughs> Uh, in, in a lot of these matters, what, one of the most beautiful and powerful things that I've ever read is an essay by Wendell Berry uh, called Standing by Words. Um, and it's a really powerful thing to think about, um, what it means to write words that you can stand by. Um, and and, and to, be, to write something, whether it's for yourself or for your family or for a crowd of strangers, and to work really hard at it and to be able to look back and say, yeah, I, I stand by that. That's a tremendously gratifying thing to be able to yeah. do. Which um, is why I never read anything once it's published. <laughs> yeah. I want to be able to say I stand by it. I stood by it when I wrote it, but don't ask me now. Yeah. <laughs> but that essay by Barry is just terrific, and I highly recommend it to anyone who takes the making of words seriously. It, it, it reminds me a little bit, and I can't remember exactly how I put it, but Chesterton said something like, um, the poet is the one who who dies and got his music out. You know, he he's he's the one that he's the one. And he doesn't mean like poet as in I write poetry, but you know the the, the person that um, you know, for him the poet is kind of a symbol of you know all the good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> he's the one that that got his guy's music out. And um, for him, that could have been inventing a certain type of cheese. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly, exactly. You did your thing. And then you <laughs> yeah. moved on. Like, you got your music out. You got it out there. Cheese, particularly. Cheese, particularly. Yeah. <laughs> the poets have not said much about cheese. Have they? <laughs> <laughs> Mysteriously. Yeah. This is um. This is for Nate. I was wondering if you could talk about um, the shift from 
writing novels to writing for screen? What, mm. what are the differences? And if you can do one, can you discipline yourself to do the other? Or? Let me just, I'm sorry, this probably should be the last question. Um, and uh, I just wanted to interject that real quick. <laughs> um, so I'll just ramble on indefinitely. <laughs> uh, there, yeah, there's a macro difference, a, a large difference in that uh, you can write the best script of the year. I mean, all hands down, best script of the year, and it could be the worst movie of the year. There's, there's so many other elements that come into play in the execution of the film. <coughs> so it's, uh, it's like writing. You could, you could take Henry V and then go watch a bunch of fifth graders put it on and are you moved? It doesn't work. So it's strange in that you are taking ideas and then you're handing them off to committees and teams of people and saying, you guys go ahead and execute it. And that, that's just very, very odd to me. So I'm not, I'm not used to that at all. Uh, so I've, I have a firm commitment to prose and, and fiction because it's where I can actually steer it. I'm not writing recipes. So a, a screenplay is a recipe for a story, which somebody else can then go execute where a novel is. You're all the way through the execution, um, with the exception of the title and the cover design. I mean, that's Don't all. Don't get me started. Yeah. <laughs> so which are both considered marketing decisions, and they are, so the publisher flexes their muscles there and they'll, they'll do what they want to do on the title and the cover. But everything on the inside is you, um, if, if you have the right kind of relationship with the publisher. <laughs> but um, script is a, just a very, very different thing, and I, I do enjoy it. I, I like it, but uh, knowing full well, there's, it requires 90 other people or 400 other people to make this story happen. So it's I've written a couple, um, I've written two, working on the third right now, which is The Great Divorce, which is uh, the most difficult and exciting thing I've, I've worked on. But, um, you know, it's, it's great. And one of the reasons why I'm excited working there is because I, I think that, you know, the, the producer can, can do this. You know, he can, he can tackle difficult stuff. So I, that's, the, that's macro difference. Micro difference is you are writing structure and dialogue. Mm -hmm. So if you can write a novel and you can write it well, and you are not a snot, you're willing to admit that you must structure your novel, and you cannot just let yourself free range like a really healthy chicken. <laughs> you know, so you've got to actually be disciplined. Like you have to hit your marks. You've got to be disciplined. You have to serve your audience, not yourself. Like you can admit those things, and you're good at dialogue, and you can shape a novel. Then yeah, you can you can learn to shape a screenplay. You know, like it, it can be done. It's structure and dialogue, and then all the flesh. Uh, that gets put on it afterwards, the really terrible score and the bad special effects, those will come later. <laughs> Can you explain again how the chicken comes in? <laughs> I was following it. Yeah, tell that. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. <laughs> no, I don't. I'm just good in the moment. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thanks. Oh, well, that's about